Well, if you would open with me in your Bibles to Psalms, chapter 24. And we will be looking at one psalm in particular, Psalm 24. And once you have found Psalm 24, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 24, verse 1, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong, and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. (laughs) The title of our sermon tonight is The Rightful King the rightful king. And Psalm 24, much like many of the Psalter, is very focused on who God is and what he is like. Indeed, much of scripture is focused on the uh, almost obsession or the centrality of God. And it should not surprise us that that is the case because uh, indeed all of life is rightfully oriented about the the idea that God is the foundational truth from which all other truths and realities and um, even creation and, and things like that flow. There are some truths like that truth that are so foundational they've been known since the beginning of the world. The truth that the Lord is the the one real true thing in the world in reality is so so basic that scripture doesn't even really have much of an apologetic for it. Scripture doesn't spend much time debating about whether God is real or he does exist. It simply starts chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. And in there, there is an assumption that there was a God from the beginning who could create. Scripture does not spend much time uh, uh, musing about whether God is or is not or whether he does or does not exist. I say that because those truths are very important and so important that we could spend our whole lives diving into them and trying to understand them because they're so practical. There are other truths that we as a society accept and we we assume them as basic truths, but they're not in fact so basic. And I say that because when when we live in the world that we live in, a society founded on uh, science and and medicine and, and Western values, 
Uh, we tend to think of the things that we learn in school as these kinds of basic truths. And you'll notice that if you've lived in a Western school system growing up in the last 50 years or so, um, the, the reality of God being real is not a basic truth taught in those school systems. Basic truths, on the other hand, that are taught in the school system by our world are things like uh, if you go to a chemistry class, you can learn that the atom is the, the smallest indivisible particle of, uh, of matter. And that is far from basic truth, but we teach it as though it's a basic truth. In fact, when I was teaching my high schoolers uh, when I was first out of college, one of the first things that surprised me was how, short, uh, how short-sighted everyone is about our understanding of science and medicine. And in this culture, we believe that science and medicine is so foundational, so basic, that it's been known since the foundations of the world. But much of what we know about science has really only come about in the last 200 or 100 or even 50 years. And I say that because those things that are much more nuanced, much more new revelations to humanity, are things that we treat as foundational and obvious truths. And things that are plainly obvious truths since the, since the foundation of the world are things that we might hold as uh, opinions or things that we might believe, might not believe, or are optional to believe. And I want you to know that if that's a descriptor of how you think about those kinds of things, that's not a shocker because we live in the culture that we live. We're discipled by the culture that teaches us things about truth and reality, and much of what our culture teaches us reflects what I just said, that science is true, and indeed science is true, but we treat it as such a basic truth that everyone should have known it and it's obvious from the beginning. And truths that are even more foundational than that, the reality of God, the image that people bear that is from God, the value that human beings have derived from their creator, those truths, which are obvious from the beginning as well, are things that we treat as mere talking points often. So as we look at Psalm 24, I want us to consider our worldview, consider what this psalm has to say about our worldview, and I want to make the case that this psalm advocates for a worldview that is not one isolated truth claim that there is a God who is in heaven, but that it is a whole worldview claim that this God in heaven has necessary things that uh, affect our lives, the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, and that that is not some, some isolated fact that is uh, devoid of any of the rest of life, but it is the foundational fact that informs everything else that we will ever participate in in life. And this psalm treats that topic, and so I would like to look at that together uh, in our time right now. This worldview claim starts at the very first verse of the psalm when it says these words, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. You'll notice, much like Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning, God, the psalm does not debate whether Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, God, is or is not a real person, or a real being, or a reality. It simply assumes that, and it will build its argument from that point. The earth is the Lord's. All that we see around us, all that we see created, the mountains, the, uh, the weather, the planet, people, people's intellects, all of those things are creations of God and they belong to God. Everything that's in the earth, 
indeed everything that's ever been discovered in all of creation, was never unknown to God. He not only knows all things, he actually created all things. And when we, as a very advanced society, look far off into the deep recesses of the cosmos and we discover new stars and new planets and we theorize about how these things have come to be and what all might be out there, all of what we are discovering is simply things that we are catching up on that God actually invented from the beginning. And that's an important thing to remind ourselves of because when we discover such advanced things, we tend to think of about ourselves as more and more intelligent, as a growingly uh, uh, advanced and informed group of people. And indeed, that is true, but it is still merely a sliver of what exists in the mind of God. We discover things that before we were even formed, he set about designing and orchestrating and putting into place. So not only are the things that we see out in the world gods, the people who dwell within the world also belong to him. The earth is the Lord's, meaning all that we see in creation, and the fullness thereof, meaning all the fruit of creation, all the things that come about as a result of creation, meaning truth and math and science and uh, the cultivation of work and inventions and all of the uh, emotions and love that we feel towards one another, all of those things, the fullness of creation is also God's. It's within his creation. It's within his dominion because he was the one who set about putting these things in place. And to underscore that truth, the psalm actually repeats that same idea in different terms when he says, the world which is simply a repetition of the earth, and those who dwell therein. You'll notice here as he gets more specific about what the fullness of the world is, the fullness of creation, he specifies, lest we misunderstand him, that human beings, those who dwell in creation, are also part of the fullness of God's creation. Meaning, God doesn't just own the things out there that are created, natural, beautiful, wondrous things that we see, but he also has dominion and lordship over the people who dwell in that creation as well. And here is a worldview claim that people are creatures existing in God's creation. And as a result of that, we are not lords over creation, but rather God is. And that is not an isolated truth claim that we can affirm and then simply move on about our day and act as though it doesn't affect anything else. Because if we think about that, we know that we exist in his creation and we are part of his creation. There are things that become obviously true after that truth is accepted that begin to inform how we live, how we treat one another, what is required for righteousness, what is considered good and not good. All of those things are informed as a derivation of God being the creator and we being the creature. It's a truth claim. It's a foundational truth claim. And I wanna to offer to you that it is a correct truth claim as well. And I can argue for its correctness in many ways, but I think one thing that we would wanna consider first and foremost is, are there other worldviews, other truth claims that could better explain reality as we see it? Are there other things out there that do a better job of putting the evidence together than Scripture does? 
And I'm not going to go ahead and explore every single alternate explanation, just some of the more popular alternate explanations. Remember, this is a worldview claim. And so what are the other options that we have before us? We live in a society where we know a great many things. We've been exposed to a great many worldviews. One of the more common worldviews today is the view that we as the creature, we as people, are gods of our own right and rank, and that we determine our own status in life, our own place in the world, that nothing is uh, off limits to us. If we want to be a certain way, we can be a certain way because it's up to us to decide. If we want to accomplish a certain thing, there's nothing that's restricted from us as long as we put our minds to it and we work at it. If we want to have something, we must have it. Indeed, it's our right to have it because we, in fact, are the governance of what is real out there. We are the creator in that sense. That's one option worldview. But this worldview falls apart very quickly and it doesn't take much time to think about how that would fall apart because if I claim that I have a kind of lordship and dominion claim over the reality around me and someone else believes that same worldview, we share that worldview and they claim something contrary about creation and the world around them, then the question becomes who's right about what was just spoken? You notice that the worldview immediately collapses in on itself. Because I say one thing is true, someone else says, no, 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 it's another thing that is true. They're mutually exclusive claims, and now we have a problem. The worldview doesn't work. So that worldview doesn't even hold up by its own standards, let alone by other outside tests that could be put on it. So that's not a good worldview. It doesn't explain the evidence very well. Because it's not that we have two people who might have conflicting worldviews, we have billions of people who we know have conflicting opinions about how the world should and does work. And so we know that that worldview does not work. Because if that worldview is true and we treat it as such, the person who gets to establish their reality around them is the stronger, the more successful, the one who commands more military power, the more wealthy, all of those things are things that we would say, well, that shouldn't be the thing that determines reality. But in this worldview, it does. The stronger gets to establish reality, and so they will and they do. And we've seen that before in culture. There's other worldviews, which is the worldview that we should not uh, ever claim anyone else is wrong. We should not claim that anyone else doesn't know what they're talking about or what they believe about God is false. We should never claim that because no one can really know about God. No one can really know about creation fully. And so we should all be okay with saying, well, we're pursuing God in our way. They're pursuing God in their way. Some people are not even pursuing God, but you know, they're good people by general standards. And so we leave them alone too. We, we shouldn't say anything negative towards that because after all, we're all trying to figure it out as we go. It's an alternative worldview. And it basically says that uh, none of us are really right about anything. Because what that worldview offers is, even by its own standards, the, the acknowledgement on the front end that you and me, no matter what we actually claim to be true, cannot have real certainty that it is so. Because what do we know compared to what someone else knows? And if we're on our journey of discovery, and they're on their journey of discovery, when we bump into mutually exclusive things, or we have different opinions about things, we can never call balls or strikes about anything. We can never say that's right and that's wrong about anything. 
So if someone comes to a society and says, well, I don't think murder is all that bad, and I hold that as my opinion, and we have on the front end said, well, we can't objectively claim anything to be true or false, and we can't push against their worldview at all, because who, who really knows? Then we've put ourselves in quite a bind. And again, that worldview collapses because as soon as someone comes with an alternative point that is in direct conflict, it is no longer possible to live in that kind of a world. Once again, you'll have to, as a society, as people, make up your mind collectively about what is actually true or not. And we do this all the time. So that worldview can't hold together very well. And it doesn't make good use of the evidence. The third worldview, at least the third one that I want to consider before we dive more into this text, is the worldview that, well, we haven't figured it out yet, but with enough testing, with enough data, with enough scientific discovery and advancement and, uh, and progress, we don't have it quite figured out now, but eventually, eventually, we will, in fact, have it figured out. And when we arrive at that point, whether it be 100 years in the future, 1,000 years in the future, whenever we arrive at that point, then we will be able to make an objective claim about what reality is really like. And that seems like a tempting worldview. In fact, if you love science and you love math and you love chemistry or you love just the, the world around us and studying it and evidence and reason and logic, that seems like a really good option. We don't know it all now, but eventually we'll have it all figured out, or at least the important stuff, right? But as we see as a culture, that's also not a worldview that holds up to time or to testing. For one, if such a worldview is true, then only when we get to that point in the future and we can make objective claims about what is or isn't so, only then will we be able to go backwards and say that this was right and this was wrong. The problem on the front of that is in the moment, it's often the case that we have to say this is right and this is wrong. If at some point in the future we discover truth and it's a new kind of understanding of truth, and eventually we get there and we say this is it, we will never be able to go back in history and say these people were right or wrong because after all, they couldn't have known any better. So we can never, let's say, in the future, if we scientifically prove that humans have worth and value and life matters, we can never go backwards in history and say that slavery was wrong because those people couldn't have known. We only discovered it out here in the future. We cannot hold them accountable to things that they never knew. Simultaneously, we could never hold Hitler responsible for the Holocaust because if only we discover something like that in the future and we put it all together, could we look back and say that was wrong, but we couldn't have held him to such a standard. He didn't know. If he would have been presented with that data and evidence, though, he could have figured it out. The worldview is, like the other two that we looked at, unlivable. Because we live in a reality right now, where we, even if we can't explain it all, even if we can't put it all together nicely, we know certain things are objectively true. Scripture would say it's written on our hearts. We might not be able to explain it, but when we look at the mistreatment of people, we can say that's wrong. Even if we can't put it together in a worldview, we know that that's wrong. And so any worldview that we accept has to be able to explain that. It has to be able to put all that together in a livable, functional framework. 
And it has to be one that isn't just applied to us individually, but has to be applied to creation. Because if it is indeed a true worldview, it's not true just for us. It's true for everyone, because it's objectively true. And so comparing just those three other options, and there's many more you could look to, comparing just those three more popular ones, it's clear that each of them individually doesn't hold up within their own standard of living. And so then we are left with the worldview I posited to you in the beginning and the one that the psalmist here writes about, that God is Lord, he is creator, and we as creation follow his statutes, his law, his way of living, whether or not we fully understand it, because we are creatures and we are not God. That's the worldview put forth here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is the Lord's and those who dwell therein, all of it is his. When you look at someone else who you don't know, even if you don't know anything about them, you can know this much. That person is bearing the image of God. They are his, not yours. And so you can't do whatever you want with them because they're God's and not yours. And it's a good thing to have God be the one who has control over you because as scripture also tells us, he's a good God who loves humanity and is resolved to save humanity as well. And scripture paints this worldview even more by advancing and expanding it and saying in verse two, for he, this God who was just mentioned, he has founded the earth upon the seas and he has established it upon the rivers. Now to your Western ears and to my ears, that won't make much sense because we don't know Hebrew poetry very well. But it's a, a euphemism or an illustration of chaos and disorder and randomness. In Jewish literature and Jewish understanding, the oceans, the seas, the, the tumults of water, those are all pictures and images of chaos, unbound chaos. And if you want to check that, you can just go again back to Genesis chapter 1 and see how God actually has to cultivate and uh, control and subdue the waters, which are the waters over the deep, the chaos that existed before God put it all into order. The seas and the rivers, God has established the world and creation upon the chaos over the rebellion, over the rejection of him, and he has established it in spite of the rebellion from the beginning. That's the supporting evidence, if you will, of this worldview. So it shouldn't surprise us that rebellion still exists away from God because this worldview explains it right here. It says that that rebellion was true from the beginning and it even continues to be true today. But nevertheless, he has established the world over the rebellion or upon the rebellion, upon the seas, upon the rivers. And so this God governs and controls all that we see in creation. It's a worldview, and the claim is this. He is God, he is creator, and everything else in life conforms to that one essential truth. Verse three continues this idea with a question. So it has the claim that God is God, and the question is in there in, there in verse three, okay, if God is God, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? If this God is holy, how could we be in communion with this God? If he is the God who created all things, if he's so far above us, so, so big that he created everything that we see and even things we've never discovered, how could we go to him? Who could ascend to his holy hill? Who could ascend to the hill of the Lord? 
And the second part of verse 3, and who could stand in his holy place? Who could do such a thing? It answers that question, and that answer is a rather troubling one, if you consider your own state as well. It says in verse 4, he who has a clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully, he, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I want to stop there before we look at verse 6 and just consider what was put forth as well. So God is God, and then the first question is, okay, how are we in communion with this God? And the answer, we could be in communion with this God if you meet this standard, clean hands, pure hearts, a soul that does not lift up what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, or rather, it does not promise falsely or lie. It does not say it can do something and then not follow through. If you meet that standard, you can go ahead and ascend into the presence of God, His holy dwelling, and enjoy that fellowship with the one who created you. But the problem is, is that we know by our own lived experience that such a, a reality is not a realistic one. You might consider just this past week or some moment in the last year or some moment in your adolescence where you did not in every possible way meet this standard. It would not surprise me or you if everyone here fell short of each of these things at various points and frequently throughout our lives. Clean hands. As scripture later defines in the New Testament, that means bloodless hands, hands that bear no guilt, meaning you have to meet the standard of not having hated another person in your heart. If you have not done that, then you have clean hands. But if you have, your hands are unclean, as it were. If you do not have a pure heart, you cannot enter into the holiness of God, meaning your heart needs to be undefiled, untainted. And we live in a world where not only is the world tainting our heart and leading it astray, but as scripture says, even our own lustful desires within our heart leads us astray and corrupts us. The corruption is both an external one and an internal one, and both of them condemn us away from having a pure heart. Strike one, strike two. And someone needs to not lift up their soul to what is false, and they need to never have lied or told any false thing ever. And in that, we all fall short, probably in every count. So without clean hands, without a pure heart, without a, a soul that is unstained, and without a, a mouth that does not speak false things, how do we enjoy fellowship with the Creator? How do we ascend to the holy hill? How do we dwell in the glory of God forever? How do we do that? Well, it is impossible because the standard has been set, and if we fall short, it doesn't change the standard. It is not as though God has set a standard, and if we miss that one, he gives us a makeup test, and if we miss that one, he gives us another makeup test, because if he kept re-giving us the standard, giving us resets, eventually, given enough time and even given enough opportunities, we would continuously fail the standard. It is not as though the test is the problem, it is as though we are the problem. We fall short of the standard. 
Once again, the worldview of Scripture actually explains this. It says that from the beginning, God created things, and in the beginning, he created humanity perfect, but since the beginning, an event happened, which was the fall of humanity into sin, and that sin left such a mar on the human soul that every human since Adam and Eve have been enslaved to sin, meaning they come out of the womb ready to go with an unclean hand and an impure heart and a lying tongue. As it were, they are dead on arrival. And yet, we go throughout this life trying to explain away much of what we see as plainly obvious about ourselves. Trying to, in some way, mold the standard so that we might be able to squeeze ourselves in and make it. And that is the human condition. We might do this through religious practice, religious observance. We might do this through moral uh, accomplishment. We might do this through uh, social appeal. We might do this through friendships and getting approval from others. We might do this from simply finding our own internal peace and getting our own internal heart right with ourselves. And somehow that might make us feel as though we've made it and hit the standard. But in each of such cases, it is not a, it is not a satisfying response to this standard. No matter how we might explain it away, no matter how we might try to push off the standard or change it, the reality of the world around us, our own soul within us, all bear testimony to the fact that we are still short of the standard as it was set. We can't squirm out of it. And we, in no way, shape, or form, will be able to change God's mind about it. No matter how good of a witness we are on our own behalf, God knows all things, He understands all things, he created all things. Who could stand against such a judge who has perfect knowledge of everything we've ever done? And we know that if we don't meet verse 4, we don't get what's in verse 5. We do not receive the blessing from the Lord, and we do not attain a righteousness from this God. Because we've missed the standard. We've missed the mark. And so how do we explain the worldview that I propose is obvious from the beginning and then the worldview that then leads us to this state where we're now in verse 5 where if we accept verse 1 and 2, we have to accept what verse 5 says that we will not receive the blessing of the Lord because we are short of the standard as laid out here. Has the worldview just collapsed as the first three did? Has this worldview fallen short and been unable to meet the mark of being internally consistent? Possibly. Possibly. But thanks be to God that we have more testimony than just this about how this worldview, in fact, not only uh, rallies and rebounds and makes sense again, but also how it is more glorious in that way than it was here if we somehow did meet the standard and had our own righteousness. To understand that, we need to first understand a philosophical idea, but it's a simple one which is that there are two kinds of knowledge that we can have. We could have knowledge about ourselves, and we can have knowledge about God. This is not my words. This is the words of a very well-known and uh, well-read theologian. And he says we can know about ourselves, we can have that kind of knowledge, and we can know about God, and we can have that kind of knowledge. Two different lanes of knowledge, but both inform our reality. And if we adopt the worldview of Scripture, we have to also say, 
that the knowledge of God, knowledge about God, precedes knowledge about ourselves. Meaning, we can't know about ourselves really unless we first know about God and what he's like. Because God is the first truth in reality, and so we have to understand that before we can build upon the foundation to know about us. It's very backwards to how in the West we try to get the worldview built, which is that we put ourselves first, we try to understand ourselves, and then we try to work that out and understand about God and other things like morality. So looking internally doesn't make sense until you first understood God, you've looked externally, and in understanding God correctly, then you can look internally and see rightly what you are like. And then, if you adopt that, we know that what we are is what is laid out here in verse 5 because we've looked at God, we've seen his standard, we've looked at his standard, and then we've looked at ourselves and seen that we've fallen short of this standard. It's very different than looking at ourselves and saying we are generally good compared to the rest, which would be an internal start, and then saying surely God will accept me. We flip the order. But scripture doesn't allow us to do so. And if that is true, then what hope do we have? Well, the hope is the hope that we have when Paul lays it out for us in Romans as well. Paul actually lays the same case before his readers in that letter. And you don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 1 starts the case and kind of builds us to right where we are here, that all fall short of the standard, even though it's plainly obvious about God, has been obvious since the beginning, it's been written on people's hearts, and it's not as though they are seeking after God and not finding him, it is that God is seeking after them and they are actively rejecting every piece of revelation that's ever been put before them. They don't know God, not because it's not known to them, but because what's plainly obvious is rejected, and then so God gives them over to their own wickedness. Paul builds that case and then spends the rest of the letter of Romans explaining how, if that is true, can we possibly have any kind of hope in this life? And he builds the case by first establishing that it's true, not, not trying to uh, squirm away from it. He faces it head on. And then he says, by the time you get to Romans 8, thanks be to God, because we do not need to save ourselves. Because despite what we see here, and despite the obvious fact that we are short of the standard, God, in his infinite wisdom and in his initial creation, knew before he created us that we would fall short of the standard. In fact, before he created everything from the beginning, he knew that. Before the fall happened, he knew that. And so in his good creation... He not only created us, but he also created the means by which we would be saved, which was himself coming and condescending in human form. The story of scripture starts with the reality of God. It builds the case that we are short of God's standard, and it continuously and concurrently builds the case that nevertheless, God is resolved to save a sinful humanity in spite of themselves which is good news because you and I are not actively about the work of trying to make ourselves better. We are actively in rebellion towards God, as scripture says. And so what hope do we have? Except that he has mercy upon us and not justice. That he shows us grace and does not give us what we deserve. Scripture tells us that we can never go before the throne of God, enter his holy dwelling place, knock on the door, and say, you must let me in because I've hit the standard. We could not question God. Even Job says so. He could not even question God. Even though he feels that he himself is innocent, he could never go before God, even if he feels himself innocent, because God is so holy, so righteous, so blameless, 
that he would fail to even articulate a case against him. And this God, who's that holy, is also so loving towards his creation, towards humanity, towards those who bear his image, that he sends himself into this world. He takes on the form of us, the form of a sinful humanity, and he lives in that humanity in perfection. Because while our humanity we associate as always being sinful, he takes on that form and lives in perfect obedience, in sinlessness, in that standard. And he lives in such a way that he can get to the end of his life and say that, I have clean hands. I have a pure heart. I have never sweared falsely or deceitfully. And I am here, holy and blameless. He gets there. He makes it. And then the wicked humanity, people, crucify him in his sinlessness, further adding to our own guilt, because we say that he wasn't who he claimed to be and that indeed he was an imposter. And he dies, and in that act of providence, he not only dies, but he dies in our stead and then is resurrected to life by the same God who allowed him to be killed. And in that resurrection, he comes to life, and now not only does he have his own righteousness, but he has also borne all the sinfulness of his people, and he then offers this righteousness to them so that when they want to go before God on Judgment Day, when they want to ascend to the communion of God, they could say, I also have clean hands, I also have a pure heart, and I've also not spoken deceitfully. Not I, but Christ, who lives in me. And then, his faithful children, verse 5, will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God. Not because it's their own righteousness, but because it's the righteousness of God which overshadows and expunges every sin that they've ever committed. And it is though they have never sinned before, it is though their hands had always been clean. As we would sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And verse 6 then reflects on this fact and says, such is the generation of those who seek him. As Jesus says in the New Testament, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. It is not as though God is hiding away and obscuring himself. From the beginning, he has been revealing himself to humanity. And so when we seek God, it is because he has first sought us. And for those who seek him, they will find him, and they will seek the face of God, and they will discover the righteousness which has been revealed from God to save humanity. And then you'll notice, maybe often to the margin on the right side or the left side of your Bible, these words, Selah, which means pause, reflect, meditate. And consider all that was just said. Who will ascend if you meet this standard? God has met the standard. And if you seek him, you too will meet the standard. Pause. Meditate on the goodness of God. And then verse 7 continues the praise, the corporate praise of the body. And it has these 
affirmations to declare about God. It says, first, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It is a a call to obedience, a call to response, and it essentially says that this holy hill that exists, this dwelling place of God that was previously inaccessible, has now become accessible because the king of glory is coming in. So the gates have to open, the doors have to swing open, because the king of glory who has met this standard is coming in. And it is not as though the king of glory needs to come in and then be enthroned. He's already the king of glory, and he's simply taking what is rightfully his, what he has earned at his own obedience. And verse 8 asks the question, who, who is this king of glory? Who is this king that has accomplished all that was set out in verse 4 and 5? Who is that king? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Now, as we like to point out here, If you have an English translation in front of you, you'll see the words LORD, but pay attention to the details that it's a all caps L-O-R-D, which means it's a distinguishing kind of Lord. It's not that he is the Adonai, the God of his people, but it is Yahweh. It is the name, if you will, of God. It's not only saying he's God, it's now personally identifying who has met this standard. Who is the king of glory? It's Yahweh. You want to know who it is? It's Yahweh. It's not whoever you envision it to be, it's Yahweh, the one who is self-revealing, who is himself seeking his people. That God is the one who's strong and mighty. That God is the king of glory. That God is mighty in battle. You might ask, what is the battle that has been won? It's the battle over sin and darkness. Jesus comes into this world to destroy the works of the devil, and when he reigns victorious over sin and death, when death is finally defeated, he resurrects and then takes what's rightfully his. He is mighty in battle. He is vindicated. He is victorious, which is good news because when we took our shot, we were not victorious. And so it's good that he is, that he can open the doors. And verse 9 essentially repeats the command, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Once again, affirming what was true and previously stated. Then it asks the question again in verse 10, who is the king of glory? And this time, it again identifies God. It says Yahweh. But now it specifies, it's not Yahweh strong and mighty. This is Yahweh of hosts. Which is interesting because if he's God of hosts, if he's Lord over the hosts of heaven, that would only make sense if he created them. Which is the same affirmation laid out in verse 1 and verse 2 that he created everything, and the God who created everything and set the standard is himself the one who met the standard and then comes and who claims that he has met the standard. And he's not only Yahweh victorious, he's Yahweh over the hosts, Yahweh of creation, Yahweh who commands all that is in the world. And then it affirms, in case that the answer was not clear, that he is, he is the king of glory. And as I said, that is not an exclusive claim that we can put off into some corner of our lives and affirm. If that is true, all these subsequent realities are true, such as the standard laid forth is an objective standard. And it doesn't really matter how we feel about it, because 
We are not a creator. We are a creature subject to a creator. We can no more debate this standard than we could debate the existence of the atom and all the particulars of it. It's, as it were, confirmed and settled. And not only is the standard fixed, but also many other things are fixed. Like when we ascend to be his people, how we live is fixed. Not by us and how we feel we should live, but by him and how he tells us we should live. He has saved us as a reality and that he commands obedience from us. Not obedience depending on how we feel about it, but obedience as a necessary reality of having been saved. Because once again, he is the creator and we are the creature. And it is a good news that it is this way. This worldview is good news. It is not a hopeless worldview. Because when God, the rightful king, sits on his throne, everything else in all creation orbits as it should have orbited. Because when he, the creator, created this world, created this universe, created all that we know to be, he created it with his glory in mind. The, the world and the cosmos reflect his glory. And so in as much as they don't, in as much as they rebel against that, and as much as we rebel against that, we actually fall short of how we were designed to be. All of creation actually groans because it does not do what it ought to do. It's like driving a car, ignoring the manual, and letting all those weird sounds go on as you continue down the road. And we do that with our lives and with creation as though there is no way to fix it. And these are just realities, as it were, of how we live. But we know better because God has told us so, that there's actually a way that the creation functions and fires on all cylinders, reflecting the glory of God, operating in perfect unity and perfect harmony, where the angels can dwell with God and sing his praises, where his people can dwell with him and sing his praises, where all of creation once again orients and, and lives as it was created from the beginning. And him seated on the throne, all creation operating as it should be, is a far better world and a far better creation to live in than the broken creation that we know exists around us. Because even if you don't believe all of what I've just put in front of you, there's much about what I've said that you can't help but deny. Such as, there's something wrong about the world as we live in it. You might not agree with the standard that I put forth, but you can certainly say that there's a whole lot of killing that goes on around here that feels like it should not be happening. There's a whole lot of broken relationships that exist in this world that feel as though they should not be so. You might have lived through and experienced the brokenness of a marriage, the brokenness of a friendship, the brokenness of people mistreating one another, and even if you can't put it all into words or put a worldview to it, you can't help but say that evidence is plainly obvious that it should not be so. Every fiber of my body says so, my reality says so, and even people around me are saying it shouldn't be like this. Well then, I offer you the, the question, if you don't agree with this, how the scripture says it should be, how do you say it should be? If you have a better putting forth of the evidence, if you can make better sense of reality around us, better than Psalm 24 does here, I'd be more than happy to sit down and talk about it. And I think that in confidence of the biblical worldview, that I would stake my claim here. That scripture is true, what was put forth by the psalmist is true, 
and that it will stand up to any scrutiny, any poking and prodding, any kind of questioning or wrestling, it will stand. Not because of stubbornness, not because of dogmatism, not because of a brutish, powerful religion, but simply because it is so. In the same way that if you ran test after test after test, testing whether gravity was real, every time gravity would be vindicated as being so. It is not so because someone wrote it down and then made it so. It is so as a simple fact of how creation functions. And so is God, and so are we, and so is his standard and our need for his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious word. Though many times you bruise us and remind us of things that are uncomfortable, you nevertheless do so in order to bring glory to your name and to soothe our aching hearts. Just as we need to rectify what is broken, it is good to know that you have actually already taken care of it and that there's not much for us to do. There's in fact nothing left for us to do, but rest in your finished work. Lord, we praise you for all that you've done, all that you've achieved, for you telling us about it so that we can glorify you in it and so we can actually live as we ought to live and uh, praise as we ought to praise, Lord, as we now enter into a time of further worship by the singing of songs and the taking of the supper. Would you give us grace that we may worship you as we ought to, as was rightly ordained from the beginning. And you would in some small measure give us your spirit so that we could glorify you as we ought. We pray for your grace in this moment. Amen.